Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is David Kirkpatrick, an international correspondent for The New York Times and the author of the new book, Into the Hands of Soldiers, Freedom and Chaos in Egypt and the Middle East. Currently based in London, Kirkpatrick reported extensively throughout the Middle East for The Times, especially in Egypt, where he lived with his family. This book is a portrait of Egypt during the Arab Spring, as well as an examination of the ways that Egypt's depressing path over the past several years have both initiated and mirrored the course taken in the region as a whole. It also looks at the way the Obama administration dealt with the Arab Spring. David Kirkpatrick joins me now. Hi, David. Hello, Isaac. Where are you? Uh, I am in the headquarters of the New York Times. I'm home for a week and I'm here in New York. Okay, well, it's good to have you back on uh, on American soil from uh, uh, perfidious uh, London. So, tell me for uh, for people who have not read the book, which is uh, is probably nobody quite yet. Why exactly throughout history has Egypt been such an important country to the Middle East, and ultimately, in many ways, so representative of the general direction of the region? Well, one in four Arabic speakers lives in Egypt. Uh, so Egypt is by far the giant of the region, uh, and it's for a long time it was the most advanced country, the largest economy, uh, the most influential historically. Uh, it's all you know. The the Nile is an extraordinary thing in a in a desert region like that, and then on top of that, uh, you know, over the last hundred years or so, you add the Suez Canal, which makes it uh, a gateway for commerce, uh, for the United States Air Force, uh, flyover rights. And it's at the crossroads of three continents. So for Arab culture, uh, for history, for geopolitics, it's an extraordinarily influential place. Tell us a little bit about your history um, with Egypt. Uh, When did you first go there and how did you end up there in 2010, 2011? Well, I turned 40 in 2010 and I wanted a change from being a Washington correspondent. So I raised my hand for uh, the uh, what looked to be a fairly boring foreign posting in Cairo. And to my great luck, I arrived just as the Arab Spring kicked off. I, I, hap- I went to Tunis thinking I would write a, a story about what appeared to be a rash of suicides, uh, people killing themselves. And that turned out to be the first uprising of the Arab Spring, and by the time my editors realized what a big deal it was and wished they could send in a more seasoned correspondent, it was too late. They'd close the airports. And so there, so I was there in Tunis and Egypt just as it began, uh, and I saw the, the rise of the, the revolution, the uprising in Trier Square, the optimism that followed, the generals basically back on their heels and afraid of the people in the street. And then when it all turned around, uh, and the military took power again in 2013, and we have the new uh, consolidation that is in place today. Well, okay, so let's let's go back to the the first period. When when did you get a sense that uh, Hosni Mubarak's role was really um, teetering and he really could fall? You know, that is a very interesting question. Uh, so there was a moment several days into the protests when an anonymous spokesman for the military came out on the state television, the Egyptian military, and said that we will not harm civilians. We are going to respect the legitimate demands of the people. And it was a heck of a thing because Hosni Mubarak was nominally still president, and yet his military had clearly broken with him. And I thought to myself, well, it's over. He's toast. 
uh, but my editors prevailed on me that things might be more complicated, as indeed they were. We couldn't yet be sure that it wasn't some sort of hoax, that the military wasn't waiting for orders, that this wasn't sort of some sort of a ruse. And indeed, he hung on for roughly another 10 days after that before he was finally gone. But in retrospect, after that moment, when the military publicly broke with him, when they endorsed what they referred to as the demands of the people, and they did so evidently without telling him, he was, he was dead. He was over. The reason I'm dwelling on that is because uh, the sequence of events has become somewhat mythologized. After that point, uh, once it was really pretty clear that Mubarak was, uh, was on his way out, President Obama, for the first time, began to say he ought to go. Uh, but the truth is, the American government didn't really in any meaningful way break with Mubarak until it was absolutely clear that he was no longer viable. I want to I want to get back to Obama and his administration's role in all of this. But but first, just to continue with the Egypt story, you you write in the book at one point that you struggled not to sound starry eyed. That was the phrase you used about Tahrir Square and uh, the uprising against Mubarak. Can you can you talk about the challenge of being a journalist when something like that is going on? And you're obviously a important forward correspondent for, you know, the most important news organization on Earth, probably. Well, it's the thing of it is that what happened in Tahrir Square in 2011 really was kind of a miracle. And there's almost no way to sugarcoat that. It was just an extraordinary thing because what de- what defined that moment was a sense of solidarity bringing together people who have almost nothing in common. So what you saw in Tahrir Square as it really got going was not only young people, but also old people, and not only rich people, but also poor people, and not only Islamists, but also Christians. It was like, you know, it, it was it, it was miraculous. It was it, it was the uh, you know the dogs and the cats living together, and they were united uh, by their desire for change, unspecified, and for a better Egypt, and. It, it was a heck of a thing to behold because it, in many ways it was almost like they were showing off their ability to build the new society inside the old, that they could have a more civil and a more law-abiding system within the square. I mean, they were they were setting up communal kitchens, they were distributing food, they were running checkpoints, and unlike the Egyptian police who were so routinely abusive, their checkpoints were very polite they apologized as they patted you down, and yet they made sure that no one brought in any weapons. It was, you know, and and at night they had poetry readings. Uh, it was a lovely, lovely time. And it's hard even now to describe that without sounding like you're you're falling for something. After this happens, after Mubarak falls, um, when did you first get a sense that things were going to go in a direction which I guess culminate where they are today with Egypt under a pretty brutal military dictatorship. Well, one of the things about my book is that if you read it, you'll find that I am surprised again and again and again by the course of events. So uh, if you're looking for someone who can accurately predict the future, you've come to the wrong place. I would say we all knew and we wrote many times as Mubarak fell uh, that this was just the beginning of the difficulties. Uh, that said, you know, after Egypt had held uh, several successful parliamentary elections and their first free presidential election, and then held a fair 
uh, and free referendum to establish a new constitution, I thought they really had a chance. Uh, and not just me, uh, the American embassy did. I remember very vividly attending a, an off-the-record briefing at the embassy in March of 2013, and they were saying that they thought military intervention was, quote, extraordinarily unlikely. Uh, and that's not just my memory. We were allowed to bring our tape recordings. So I, I was able to go back and check. And for sure, they did not see it coming. And that, uh, in March of 2013, that, in retrospect, was really just four months uh, before the military takeover. So I was uh, I was skeptical as late as June of 2013, if I'm honest, uh, that the Egyptian people would allow their hard-won uh, democracy to be squashed. And in that, I was totally wrong. Well, why do you think they did, if in fact they did and it wasn't sort of forced upon them? If in fact they did. That's the interesting question. You know, as those 30 months of freedom went on, there was a a, a phenomenon that's a little bit abstract, but I came to think of it like this. Everybody in Egypt said they wanted democracy. They said they wanted pluralism. They looked at the governments of the West, and they wanted that kind of a government, not because they thought it was Western, but because they thought that's what they deserved. But they were afraid that some other group, some other constituency was going to rig the system, was going to hog all the power and run things the way Mubarak had run things. So the Islamists were afraid of the old regime. The liberals were afraid of the Islamists. And for a while, the military was afraid of the people in the street. And those fears kept things in balance for a while. But then as the politics began to set in, as it began to be like two different factions fighting for power, the civilians became divided. I'm giving you the real short answer, the short version here. The civilians became divided, and they were so afraid of each other that the military had an opportunity. Uh, and at that point, uh, that's when I think that that's how I explained to myself the way that it seemed like the country was turning on its own uprising. I want, you, if you can, to talk a little bit about the personality and leadership of Mohammed Morsi, who became the leader of Egypt uh, before he was overthrown. And your book presents a pretty uh, intriguing portrait of him and um, very flawed leader in person. And and I'm wondering what what you made of him and, and specifically whether you think that he that someone who was more competent and uh, a better leader in his place could have taken Egypt on a different course or whether in hindsight, I know you alluded to this earlier at the time, but in hindsight, you think a military intervention of a Muslim Brotherhood run government was inevitable. I don't think it was inevitable. Uh, I don't think anything about this was inevitable. I know that uh, the person who is now President Sisi was telling American officials, but also his Egyptian confidants, uh, uh, well into the Morsi presidency, that he was happy to have a Muslim brother uh, as the fairly elected president of Egypt. So it's certainly, I don't think, was ever foreordained that there would be a military takeover. The question you asked at the outset, you know, could a more competent president have pulled it off? You know, we'll never know. Uh, certainly, we can say with confidence Morsi didn't test that case. He was not the most competent possible president. It's easy to imagine a wilier uh, or more strategic leader uh, or even a better politician 
uh, in that role. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I found it, frankly, sort of winning that he was such an amateur. Uh, a lot of people will, will find fault with that, but he was just so clearly over his head. And it, in a way, at the time, when you think that Egypt is going through the his historic change, there's something sort of sweet about the fact that they've cast aside the old order and drafted a civilian with no experience from out of nowhere to run the government. The downside, of course, was he didn't really know how to run the government. What, what, what were his biggest mistakes? Well, uh, bar none, uh, his biggest mistake was uh, in November of uh, 2012. He felt that the constitutional court was poised to uh, wipe away a, a draft constitution and the assembly that had drafted it. And to forestall that, uh, he sent his spokesman out on television to read a proclamation that his rulings were above the courts. So it looked to all the world like he had made himself a dictator. It looked even to me at the time like he had made himself a dictator. Now, he was only asking to have this authority for a period of weeks uh, until the Constitution was passed. And in his defense, the courts really seemed to be out to get him. I mean, he was probably right about that. But his tactic, this unilateral uh, uh, self-aggregation of power, was uh, ham-fisted uh, and, in retrospect, stupid. And what was the ultimate breaking point that uh, you think caused Sisi and the military to take the country back over? Uh, I think that's when it began. I'm not sure we're going to find a single moment. But if you look at it from Sisi's point of view, during those final months, you know, the, the Gulf states, the Persian Gulf states were saying, please take out Morsi. We've got a lot of money and we'll bankroll this thing if you do. The liberals uh, inside Egypt were so afraid of the Islamists, they were saying, please take out Morsi. We will help justify this to the world and call it a revolution if you do. The businessmen of the old elite inside Egypt were saying, you know, we feel like our livelihoods are at stake here. Our enterprises are at stake here. We think you should take out Morsi. A lot of people in the military were not that crazy about recognizing Morsi's election in the first place. So they were saying, you know, you got to get rid of this guy. Uh, and the U.S. government, the governments of the West, were kind of equivocal, if we're honest. Uh, they were signaling, yes, they like democracy, but they were also signaling that they care most of all about their long-term relationship with the Egyptian military, and that they were somewhat disquieted themselves by seeing an Islamist in power in Egypt. So a lot of people were saying, come on, Sisi, just do this. Nobody was really saying there's going to be a price if you do. And under those circumstances, you know, maybe George Washington... Uh, there may be someone out there who would say, you know what, I'm going to turn down this easy opportunity to take all the power in my country. But that person was not uh, General Abdel Fattah Sisi. You mentioned the Obama administration earlier, and there's been some writing about Obama in terms of magazine pieces, in terms of um, his former advisor, Ben Rhodes, just wrote a memoir where Obama comes across, certainly compared to Rhodes, as, as slightly more cynical. But in your book, uh, there, there's certainly a cynicism to Obama, but in a way he comes across as less cynical than certainly the mili the American military who was sort of wanting to deal with uh, Sisi. Certainly his uh, defense secretary, Chuck Hagel, and even his secretary of state, John Kerry. Do you think that's a fair characterization, the way I just put it? And did that surprise you at all? It seems like Obama was was sort of more willing to 
try to make things work with Morsi and less enthusiastic about the coup? Uh, it's certainly true that Obama was more willing to make things work with Morsi. You know, you're using the word cynical, and I'm not sure that's the one that I would use. Uh, some of the people who were most uh, sympathetic to the coup were in their own way ideological. You know, if you look at uh, the current Secretary of Defense, uh, James Mattis, he was convinced, no matter what anyone told him, that the Muslim Brotherhood was effectively al-Qaeda. And if you take that as your outlook, then you're being idealistic uh, when you say the military should remove this menace. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure it's a case of cynicism, but certainly uh, down to the wire, uh, as things got complicated in Egypt, uh, Obama thought that the best outcome was to, to avoid Morsi's removal and try to keep the political process going. And there were people around him that for sure had long ago given up on that. And I believe were probably signaling uh, to the Egyptians that they had long ago given up on that. Right. Although Obama, this isn't something he was willing to go to the mat on, it seems like. No. After, uh, I mean, after uh, the military removed Morsi, I mean, I have in the book an account of the meeting on July 4th, 2013 in the White House. And Obama comes into the room and says right at the outset, well, obviously we can't call this a coup because that would have necessitated cutting off aid to the Egyptian military and they didn't want to do that. And then someone else reopens the question and says, you know, you could call it a coup without actually demanding that they reinstate Morsi. And that gets Obama's interest. He, ta he thinks about it. Um, and it's, a, you know, there's some back and forth. Even General Dempsey from the Joint Chiefs of Staff said at the time, look, aren't we going to lose credibility if we don't call what is obviously a coup a coup? Uh, and in the, but in the final hour, uh, Obama clearly chose the, the more pragmatic route, uh, which was also the more popular route inside his government, which was to not call it a coup and thus recognize it. The portrait of Mattis is interesting. I mean, Mattis has sort of a reputation now as this uh, scholar warrior who, you know, sits in his library when he's not working and reads all this stuff on warfare and is is considered, I think, by a lot of liberals to be kind of the most heroic figure in the Trump administration. The, the portrait here is a little bit more simple-minded, uh, sort of almost shockingly simple-minded. Um, what did What did you make of him as a character? You know, I agree with you. I have found the portrait that is emerging uh, from the media now to be at odds with his attitude specifically towards the Middle East and political Islam. And I don't know. You know, I don't know the character of the man as a whole. Um, it's possible that he has uh, what you might say is a blind spot about uh, Islam and, and political Islam. His statements uh, during the interregnum when he was no longer in the military and not yet in the White House, he spoke quite a bit publicly about his thoughts on, on those subjects. And it's very clear that he considers Islam itself to be troubled and somewhat problematic. Uh, a, a little bit of a more sophisticated form of the kind of thinking that we also saw uh, from General Mike Flynn, the former National Security Advisor. He was at CENTCOM, right? Is that Mattis was during this? Yeah, M Mattis was, that's right, Mattis was at CENTCOM. That's right. Just I just wanted to clarify. So in addition to the Americans, you have the Gulf states, which you mentioned, who have a real hatred for the Brotherhood. I was hoping you could explain that more. I mean, I know I know the Brotherhood uh, does not recognize the House of Saud, if I'm correct on that, and also that the Saudis and their allies um, 
generally uh, want stability in the Middle East or what they perceive as stability for for obvious reasons having to do with their own um, with their own rule. But why did why did the Saudis and and others go all out uh, against the Brotherhood? You know, it's interesting. The Brotherhood does not really have a problem with the House of Saud. Uh, historically, when uh, President Gamal Abdel Nasser cracked down on the Brotherhood, the fa- the brother of the Brotherhood's founder, if you will, actually fled to Saudi Arabia, and and quite a few Muslim brothers did, and found refuge there. Uh, at that time, Saudi Arabia was relying on a lot of Egyptians to be teachers and engineers and so forth, and there were plenty of of Muslim Brotherhood folks who found a, who found a home there happily, and so the Brotherhood was sort of shocked. Uh, by the level of animosity uh, from Saudi Arabia when when things went down in 2013. I would also add, Morsi made a point of making his first foreign trip a uh, visit to the king to pay his respects and convey effectively, you know, we, we mean you no harm, we're totally okay with the House of Saud. But from the Saudi point of view, they are a monarchy, as you know, and they're a monarchy that grounds its legitimacy in Islam. So along comes a movement, uh, which is the Muslim Brotherhood today, which is saying, we would like elections. What's more, we think that our reading of the Quran requires elections. Uh, That is pretty much uniquely troubling to the Persian Gulf monarchs. And remember, there are certainly plenty of people in in those countries that feel some sympathy with the Brotherhood and its ideology already, partly because of those refugees uh, from Egypt in the past that I just talked about. I want to sort of uh, move out a little bit. Um, you also traveled around the Middle East, uh, other countries in the Middle East, when you were reporting for the Times. How much of an impact did the Egyptian Revolution and then then the coup a couple of years later have on the rest of the region? And and do you think that if things had gone differently in Egypt, we might be seeing a happier story in various places in the Middle East? Well, history is the science of serendipity, and it's it's. You know, it's always too simple to say one thing happened and therefore because of that, the next thing did. But from where I stood, uh, it seemed like the coup in Egypt cast a pretty long shadow. It's hard to remember now, but as of June of 2013, it still looked like things might turn out okay in Syria. uh, And it looked quite a bit like things might turn out okay in Libya. And all in all, you could still speak. Uh, seriously of an Arab Spring, of a democratic opening. Uh, And after the tide turned in Egypt, jihadists everywhere uh, gave out a giant, I told you so. You know, we we told you you couldn't trust elections. We told you you couldn't trust the West. We told you they would never let Arabs and Muslims govern themselves. And at the same time, the authoritarians all over the region, whether they're uh, Bashar al-Assad or Syria or the Gulf monarchs, had a new spring in their step as well. So in many ways, the coup really uh, returned the region to the kinds of dynamics that we saw uh, before the Arab Spring in 2011, where it looked like your choices were extremists on the one side or autocrats on the other. Which is the which is kind of the heads I win, tails you lose deal that the autocrats in the region want. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the boogeyman for them. Is you know, it's 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 us or or Al Qaeda. That's what Mubarak was telling American officials for decades, and for a while, for those thirty months between two thousand eleven and two thousand thirteen, it looked like there might have been another way. In terms of Iran policy, uh, the new president has pulled out of the um, 
the Iran nuclear deal that President Obama made, but in, in not not involving Iran in terms of the the Gulf states and, and Egypt and and other states in the region, do you see a noticeable difference? in the way the Trump administration, the Obama administration are dealing with the region? I mean, obviously, Obama seems to have different thoughts. Uh, Trump seems to have a certain respect or liking for autocrats he feels he can do business with or relate to in some way. But in terms of practical policy differences, in terms of aid or other things, do, do you see a noticeable difference from one administration to the next? Well, goodness, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Because there are layers there. You have to separate the gov- the president from the rest of the government in both cases. I mean, the differences between Obama and Trump are vast, of course, on the level of rhetoric and and even on policy. But then you get into the the larger question of just how much can one president steer the ship, if you know what I mean. It's got a momentum of all all its own. There's a lot of of sort of historic policy and bureaucracy that is quite difficult to shift. On the other hand, one, rhetoric has its own weight. If the American president is saying, we support the principle of self-rule, that makes a difference. If an American president is saying, look, it really bothers us that you're locking up your human rights activists and not allowing free elections, that has a kind of weight in the region all its own. And then two, of course, we get to the Iran deal. You know, Obama defied American allies in the Gulf and in Israel to try to make a deal with Iran that he thought would stop it from developing a nuclear weapon. Uh, President Trump has done everything he can to, to erase that. So right there, there's a, there's a major substantive shift uh, that I think a lot of people would say has brought the region closer to a conflict. Okay, but in, and in terms of Egypt, though? Oh, in terms of Egypt... Yeah, it makes a difference. I mean, if you if you if you ask Egyptians, in particular if you ask liberal Egyptians, they will say, "Yeah, sure, we always knew the American government was cynical. We always knew the American government was going to back Mubarak, but at the same time, when there was a different kind of president, it gave us a margin to operate." You know, the 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 part the the gap between America's rhetoric and its pragmatism gave us a little bit more leverage that we could use to get somebody out of jail or to stop some torture or to press for some greater free speech rights. If you look back at President George W. Bush, he actually put quite a bit of of pressure on Egypt to open up. And in retrospect, whether because of American pressure or not, the last years of Mubarak were a golden age of freedom of expression in Egypt uh, and even political participation. So how would how would you define Egypt today? What, what, what how would you characterize um, the regime? I mean, I, I've been saying military dictatorship, obviously, but is there anything specific about the regime that you think is interesting? Is there anything about Sisi that you think differentiates him from other strongmen in the region or around the world? Well, the question about Sisi is how strong a strongman is he? Uh, you know, he at the moment. He is broadcasting quite a bit of anxiety. He does not seem very confident in his own rule. He's, you know, as soon as someone uh, barely sticks their head above the parapet as a possible challenger at any level, he locks that person up. Uh, he's even locked up other generals who he thought might be questioning him. And he's, you know, he's changing positions like his secretary of defense or his, his defense minister, as they say, or his head of general intelligence, you know, in a, in a kind of a nervous 
way. Uh, you know, he recently gave a speech where he was complaining a little bit about some of the hashtags that people are using to criticize him on Twitter. You know, and his insistence on winning uh, both elections with more than 90% of the vote, he just, he doesn't seem very confident in his own staying power. Uh, and that makes him distinctive. Uh, is there any way to sort of sense how popular he actually is, to gauge how popular he actually is? Not in any scientific way, since they don't allow public opinion polls and they don't allow realistic elections with campaigns and choices or any of those things. So no, that's that's guesswork at best. And nobody, anybody who tells you they know that he's popular or that they know that he doesn't is really just guessing. My last question for you is, as, as someone who who went to a country that uh, you hadn't lived in and uh, reported on on some big events, um, what would you, if you if you were doing it again, uh, going back to the beginning, is there anything that you learned in your time there that you wish you'd known when you first arrived? The short answer is bring your own coffee, because it's harder to find good coffee than you might think. Uh, the more serious answer, I wish that I had... Uh, really understood the operations of what we now refer to as the deep state, the kind of momentum uh, that the institutions of the old regime continued to have uh, even after uh, the head of the old regime was lopped off. I was slow to understand that. And in particular, I would say that my biggest regret was the amount of faith I placed in the Egyptian judiciary. You know, as Americans, we're accustomed to the rule of law, and we have a natural reverence for judges. Uh, it turns out that that reverence in some places may be uh, misplaced, that the law is a little bit more complicated than simply a statute written on paper and requires a a higher notion of sort of equal equal access to the to rights. David Kirkpatrick, the book is Into the Hands of the Soldiers: Freedom and Chaos in Egypt and the Middle East. David, thanks uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the program. It's great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show for today. I have to ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Topher Ruth and Nika Singh at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show.